Uh, for those of you who are visiting, we have been working our way uh, through this gospel account, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, event by event. Of course, the book of Mark is about the life of Jesus, and one of the things that Mark has been doing is painting a portrait of who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. And most of Mark's account, and particularly Recently, Mark's account has been one of focusing on action, on events in Jesus' life. But today we come to a passage where Mark, in a sense, slows down. And as he tells us about this confrontation that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day, Mark goes that extra step, which a lot of the other gospel writers do, and tells us what the content of the confrontation was. And what Jesus says ends up being a scathing critique of the religion of his day, a lesson in the nature of man, both of which apply to us here today in the modern church. And so let's listen once again, if you would stand, if you are able with me, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, you can follow along in your bulletin or in the in on the bulletin insert or uh, with your own Bibles, I'm reading out of the ESV translation, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. 
For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I recognize that that was a a long passage for us to read. Uh, It's a passage that contains two distinct events, we might say. The first being uh, verses 1 through 13, and then the scene shifts slightly, verses 14 through 23. But I wanted to consider this section together because I think it ties together. And so as we look at this passage, as we consider these two events... I want to draw your attention to two truths from Scripture that I think the Holy Spirit draws our attention to this morning. And the first one is this. Love God's Word, but beware of tradition turning toxic. Love God's Word, but beware of tradition turning toxic. Now, I love that last phrase, tradition turning toxic. I can't take credit for that. I heard that or read that in my study this past week, but I think it's a great way to describe what Jesus is getting at, particularly in these first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7. Now, when you hear that word tradition, traditions, what do you think of? Like most Westerners, I think, and I would guess that you think when you hear that word of warm fuzzies, right? Traditions are good things. Many of us think of of memories made with our families, with our children, whether it be summer break, whether it be holiday celebrations. We think of the word tradition as we think about this church. We might think of, of our traditions in this church, some of the special services that we have either during Holy Week or Thanksgiving week or even our weekly gatherings and what we do here in this context, in this liturgy as tradition. All good things. But Jesus here speaks not of those, rather he speaks of religious tradition that mars the glory of God and obscures the grace that Jesus came to bring. Traditions which we might say become an end in and of themselves. And therefore they turn toxic. As we jump back into the account of Jesus' life, Jesus is traveling around the countryside, and the Pharisees and the scribes are hearing about this man. They've had a few confrontations with him before, but they're no longer passive. They're no longer just stumbling upon this Jesus. Now there is some intense intentionality. Right? They're pursuing Jesus, not like the crowds out of curiosity and need. No, they're pursuing Jesus because they want to trap him. And so, Mark says, they come down from Jerusalem, and they come looking for an opportunity, something to warrant Jesus' arrest or something more. And they find just the offense. doesn't take long. The disciples, these men that are following Jesus, these common fishermen, these men that Jesus as their rabbi is responsible for, these men don't wash their hands before they eat. 
It's not that the Pharisees were concerned. This is not mom saying, wash your hands before dinner. The Pharisees are not concerned about hygiene. No, this is ritual. Ritual cleansing. Ritual that had worked itself into everyday Jewish life. And now this isn't the first time that Jesus and his disciples have butted heads with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of the day, over religion, and more specifically, over their ritualistic religion. We've already looked at a couple passages. It happened back in chapter 2, verse 18, when the disciples weren't fasting, remember? It happened in that same chapter in 2.24 when they were failing to observe the Sabbath traditions that the scribes and the Pharisees had put in place. And here it is again, just the, the latest installment. Now the need for cleansing, the need for ritual cleansing, wasn't something that the Pharisees created now, ritual cleansing had been around Jewish life for generations, at least in a way. You see, recognizing and remembering the distance between the Creator God and, and the creatures that He made, the Lord had prescribed in the Old Testament that every time an Old Testament priest went in to pr- approach God and to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, he would need to wash his hands. A ritualistic cleansing. Speaking to the priest, the Lord told Moses in Exodus 30, 20, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water that they may not die. Now this was a good requirement. This was from the Lord. And it reminded the priests of the holiness. It reminded the people of the holiness and the gravity of the God of Israel. The problem was that the religious leaders had made it into something more. Suddenly, this thing that was prescribed specifically for the Old Testament priesthood was now something that everybody had to be a part of. And it wasn't just washing. It wasn't just ritualistic cleansing. It was the Sabbath. It was other requirements. Now, to be fair, we we can kind of see how they got there. God had given guidelines, but when you put those guidelines into life, when you put those big picture things and try to make them practical, so much more could be said, right? So much more detail could be given More guidance is needed, and they believe that this additional detail had come to them as the leaders in Judaism. We have a document titled the Mishnah, and it's a compilation of Jewish oral law. And it was written in the second century, so a bit after this event that we just read. But most certainly, many of the things that were dealt with in Jesus' time appear in this document written in the second century. And the opening section of the Mishnah begins like this. Let me quote it. Moses received the oral law from Sinai, committed it to Joshua, 
and Joshua to the elders, elders to the prophets, and the prophets committed it to the men of the great synagogue. And they said three things. Be deliberate in judgment, raise many disciples, and make a fence around the law. There it is. That's the problem. Make a fence around the law. You see, God had given Moses his law, that's true. But they're speaking of the oral law here. They're speaking of that which isn't written down. God had given him his law. It was, it was good. It is good. It's a reflection of him. And it's enough. It's enough. But these teachers of the law, they had taken the law's silence on certain issues and they had suddenly made the law vocal about them. And then they became so focused on that, and we'll get to the maybe some of the reasons why in a moment, that they actually lost sight of the lawgiver. See, it wasn't just that their teaching wasn't from God, but it was also that their hearts were far from God as a result. And so Jesus comes down hard in this passage. He comes down hard on their religion, on their tradition, a tradition that had turned toxic. Now we sit here this morning as part of Ascension Presbyterian Church. We have a rich tradition, a Presbyterian tradition, a Reformed tradition, a liturgical tradition that, that guides how we worship God. All of those are good things that connect us to the past and help us stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. But the Pharisees here are illustrating a danger, a danger that is seized so easily by the natural heart of man that makes traditions law. And when that happens, we lose sight of one of the law's purposes, and that is to drive us to Jesus, to drive us to our need for him. And the fact that we're screw-ups and we can't do the law. Now let me be clear, I am not saying, and Jesus is not saying, that the law is of no concern. Jesus loves the law of God. Jesus loves the commandments of God. But Jesus, in his ministry, made a distinction. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he is so critical of certain things, right? He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, what Jesus is saying there is that oral tradition has taught you, but that's not right. When Jesus says it is written, like he does when he has the showdown with the, with the evil one in the desert, when Jesus says it is written, there he is, he's quoting the commands of God. And he himself dare not change those. Yeah, he fulfills them, but he loves them. See, the Pharisees had gone beyond it is written 
And they had made an idol, essentially, of the you have heard it said. And as a result, they had lost sight of God himself and their love for God. And they became in love with their man-made laws and their ability to keep those laws. Love the Word of God, but beware of tradition turning toxic. Brothers and sisters, Church of Jesus Christ, we can struggle with this same thing. In fact, the church often can be guilty of turning wisdom, wisdom into an ought. There's a difference. It used to be, as my parents said it to me, true Christians don't dance, don't drink, don't go to movies, don't chew, and don't date girls that do. What is it now? Well, now it might be true Christians don't listen to pop music. True Christians don't read Harry Potter. True Christians only vote for a Republican. Or true Christians don't send their kids to public school. Now, depending upon the specifics, some of those things may or may not be wise. I recognize that. Those are things that can and should be debated. They should be discussed among thoughtful Christians. Is this wise? But we can't go so far as to say, you ought to do this. Or it's sin to do this. That's when tradition becomes toxic. And so the Holy Spirit cautions us this morning as the church and says, while Jesus wants you to love his word, love his law, follow it, we need to be careful and we need to guard our hearts. And that brings us to the second truth that I want to focus on. And the overarching message of the gospel. And it's this, Jesus is after your heart. Jesus is after your heart. My family and I recently said goodbye to my wife's parents who were in town for a week. Many of you met them when they were here a couple Sundays ago. We had a good visit with them, and one of the things that we did when they were here was they shared with us a a series of photographs from their recent trip uh, to Vietnam. My father-in-law served there, and they returned there and toured many of the areas where he had been. My father-in-law, knowing my affinity for watches, for timepieces, brought home from Vietnam to me as a gift, a Rolex. Yeah, a Rolex. And as you might expect, and as he was quick to point out, he spent thousands on this Rolex. Of course, he would loop back around and say, well, that's thousands of Vietnamese dong, their currency, Because the current exchange rate is one U.S. dollar to 22,420 Vietnamese dong. And so he did spend thousands, but not dollars. Because, of course, this Rolex that my father-in-law gave me is not a real Rolex. Oh, it looks real. Amazingly real. But one only needs to pop the case off. And look at the insides to know this isn't a Rolex. This isn't a quality 
timepiece. It's a fake once you get inside. Jesus gives this picture of the Pharisees and the culturally relevant picture that he gives that you, many of you, most of you are familiar with is he calls them whitewashed tombs, not here but in other places. Right? They look slick on the outside but they're dead inside. The Pharisees had a heart problem. And right after this confrontation about tradition, Jesus unpacks it a bit. And as Jesus unpacks it a bit, he reminds us, I think, that we ourselves have a heart problem. We ourselves have a heart problem, which is why the first thing, as we think about the fact of Jesus being after our heart, the first thing we need to recognize this morning is that we need a new one. That we need a new heart. The Pharisees were so concerned about their clean hands that they forgot to recognize their dirty and distant hearts. They thought that all the issues were on the outside, and Jesus uses some very earthly language here to say that the heart is not dirtied from the outside. Outside stuff just runs through the bowels, Jesus says. The problem is the mess is already in there. And you can scrub all you want on the outside, but the cleansing has got to be on the inside. And we can't do that. So Jesus reminds us, and he points the Pharisees in the direction that the first step is you need a new heart. You need to look somewhere else. You need to trust in the one who took all of your filth the one who became sin for you, that you might be the righteousness of God. And let him give you a new heart as he promises to give. I, Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world, including and especially religious people who are trying to clean themselves up. Like the Pharisees, they know they're dirty. They know they need cleansing. But they don't know how to be cleansed. The guilt is not coming off. No matter what they do. Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And he's after your heart, but he first has got to replace it. And give you a new one. Jesus is about as far from self-improvement as you can get. The Bible isn't interested in you being a good person. Jesus says you've got an inescapable problem that you need help to deal with. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is grace. You can't do it, but it's been done for you. But what about the new heart? Once we get that new heart, because I know most of you in here, I know that you have new hearts. To use the big fancy theological term, I know that you've been regenerated. That you have life by His Spirit coursing through you. Spiritual life where you can obey. Where more than filth can come out of you. So what about you? 
As I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about my own life and my own desire to live a faithful gospel life before my Lord. I know my own heart's tendencies that I need to be aware of. Remnants of the old that, that sneak in and that need to be shed. And so as we close, I just want to remind us and suggest three things, three tendencies of our hearts, even a regenerate heart. And the first one is this. We have hearts that love loopholes. We have hearts that love loopholes. What do I mean by that? Well, I intentionally skipped the middle portion of this passage. I didn't talk about it at all. Right? In confronting the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus uses two examples of how they have added to the Word of God and created distance between God and themselves. And the second one we didn't look at. The law clearly states that you are to honor your father and your mother. But some, not out of hearts of love, clearly, but some had found a loophole in their focus on externals. They had found a loophole. If one declares the resources that you might use to honor your mother and father in their time of need, if you declare that as korban, then that resource, those resources were suddenly off limits because they were dedicated to God. Oh, you could still use them for your own personal needs, but you could not use them. You did not need to use them to fulfill God's command to honor your father and your mother in tangible ways. Now, korban is a very, it's a technical term that was used in the Old Testament to denote something as being dedicated to God. It's used a lot, over 80 times in the Bible, and it was a good designation. But the human heart had found a loophole, and it had been grievous. It is a, was a grievous loophole, and it had been added to. And so Jesus mentions here, even if a, even if a son had declared resources korban, and then thought better of it, as his heart began to warm towards God and warm towards his parents, he still couldn't back out of it. Because then the, then the Pharisees and then the scribes of the law would pull, you made a vow to God, and you can't break that vow, or you dishonor God. You see, our hearts can be so good at finding loopholes. I know God's word clearly says this, but, and the enemy is masterful at helping us find these loopholes. They look 10 feet wide when he shows them to us. And so I think this passage reminds us to keep close watch and guard our hearts against finding and seeking such loopholes. That's the first encouragement. Secondly, we have hearts. Maybe I should just put these in the first person. I have a heart that loves to judge. 
Whether or not the Pharisees' creation of the law, the oral law, these traditions of men, was out of genuine love for Yahweh, at some point, the power that it gave them got to them and corrupted them fully. What I mean is that we all have prideful hearts that simply love to call others out. I have a heart that loves to call others out while I remain blind to my own junk. We love to put others in their place while we remain on a pedestal. So I think one of the places God's Word takes us to this morning is that hearts that know and cultivate grace and know the love of God for them through Jesus are hearts that are learning, hearts that are learning to be humble. Doesn't mean that we never speak the truth in love, but it does mean that we are very careful about what that truth is. Well, lastly, we have hearts that love checklists. Hearts that love to contribute. Hearts that love praise for themselves. Frankly, grace is just sometimes hard. It doesn't work for me sometimes, Lord. If I screw up, I feel better with a little penance, a little pain. Make me feel it. So we fall short and we want to add. We want to add to the restoration process. We make checklists for ourselves, to-dos, to help us feel good about ourselves, to help us feel good about our standing before God. But in doing so, we minimize the work of Jesus. And we minimize His grace. While we were still weak, He died. You were you who are dead, he made alive. Jesus doesn't want your contribution. He wants first and foremost for you to receive his love. And when you really get that, when you really get his love, when you really get grace, when you really get the gospel, then your heart will ignite with fervor and love to walk in his ways. Jesus wants your hearts. Know your heart. That you might guard your heart. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the heart of Jesus and his desire for yours. And may God give us the grace to love him with all our hearts, our soul, our mind, and strength. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the teaching of our Lord Jesus Father, you know your people. There are so many more things that could be said, so many things left unsaid, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take all that is lacking and that you would fill in the gaps, that you would take all that is in error and make it forgettable. And that you would take your word and your grace and the love of Jesus and plant it deep in our hearts that we may be changed. This we pray 
In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.